0: An A and E original podcast.
1: What Disney movie is da da da? Did I? That... What song is that though? Say it again. Sing it again. No, you're gonna record me. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I can't record you. You have to record yourself. No, 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 no. Oh, um, um, uh. Elsa from Let It Go. No, it's How Far I'll Go. That's 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 Frozen? Oh, Moana, Moana. Moana, my girl. <laughs> Moana is my girl? Wait, no, go back. Amira, how does the song go? I'm not doing <laughs> this
2: with you anymore. <laughs> I feel attacked.
1: One more take. I feel One more attacked. Thing.
2: No. You know I'm tone deaf. <laughs>
3: Welcome to The Table is Ours, the podcast where we talk about all things Black. That's Black culture, Black identity, and you know we have to talk about Black success. With me today is my beautiful co-host, Amira Lawali. Ooh. Oh, you, you like that adjective today? I did, I liked
1: it. Feeling a little fancy today.
3: <laughs> and if Amira were a Disney princess... Y'all know she would be Moana if you couldn't tell already. That's my girl. <laughs> Moana is independent.
1: Yes. She's a little bit stubborn. Which, true. True. On brand. And my girl loves a boat. Oh, who? that's you in a nutshell. That Moana, me, me, Moana. Who is she? I am she. <laughs> Amira Moana Luali. Twins. We're twins. <laughs> <laughs> and you already know who it is. My partner in crime. My partner in shine. It is my co-host, Kirby Dixon. Hey, hey, hey. And if Kirby were a Disney princess. Give it to me. If she was a Disney princess, she'd be no other than Mulan. Yes. Mulan is strong. Yes. Mulan is fierce. Yes. Mulan does not let anyone stand in her way. She doesn't take no for an answer.
3: Mm-mm. Mulan is a
1: hero. And that is Kirby. You know what? <laughs> Thank you, sis. I accept.
3: <laughs> okay. So I can kind of tell from the energy this week, but girl, I have to ask you. How are you? How are you this
1: week? I am I think I'm doing pretty swell, but I okay. will be honest. I recently realized after my 28 years of life that <laughs> I talk a lot. Like and it just came it just came to me like overnight. I I'll be talking a lot. No, the person that has a podcast talks a lot. (laughs) Wow. Well, that tells you how self-aware I am because I just I literally just noticed it after meeting. I was like, Amiri, like you talk too much. And I think it's Mm -hmm. fine to express yourself, but I need to learn how to like wheel it in. And I think it's what happens with me is I have like word vomit. Like as soon as I trust you, I tell you everything right right and then after that call i'm always like oh why did i tell them so much so you're regretful after spilling too much tea yes because i'm always like i'm here to grow up shut up (laughs) like just shut up i will say though
3: you're not just like like a fluffy talker like you're not talking just to hear yourself talk you're talking because you have something to say and people should listen that is moana through and through okay that's moana
1: but embrace it I, hmm, let's see if I get there. Because right now I'm just like, learn to shut up. I hear you. I hear you. I can relate to that. But speaking of spilling tea, we have some insight for y'all. Ooh. Was that like a transition? I thought that was cute. That was kind of cute. (laughs) we're taking a little break, guys. Just a little, little summer fling break. You know, the girls
3: have been working, okay? Mm -hmm. We're just taking a little extravaganza away
1: from the mics.
3: But we're coming back hot, guys. You know what they say, absence makes
1: the heart grow fonder. Yes, new talent, hot talent, great themes and conversations. We're coming Mm. back with the fire. So follow us on all social media, all the socials. All the socials. All the socials. The table is ours, so you can know when we're coming back.
3: What are you going to do on your time off?
1: Girl, it is summer. I'm a hottie with a body. I'm going to the you beach. You a hottie with a body? With a body. <laughs> you going to the, to the beach? I'm going to the beach. Each? Let's go get
3: away. I was, <laughs> I was about to sing the same thing. You said the beach, not a boat, or the boat to the beach? Yeah. Girl, same. I will be on somebody's beach giving everybody the quarantine body that has got me through this panorama mm-hmm. with a drink in hand. Yes. Good vibes, good energy the sand between my
1: toes. Mm-hmm. You want to know a secret? <laughs> yeah. Tell me. Uh-oh. I hate the beach. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like such a liar. Amir, I hate you. I know. I know. here throw know. the mic away.
3: Mute her. She's been lying this whole time. I hate the beach.
1: Can you swim? Yes, I can. Well. Oh, okay, good. Well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what happened. I'm trying to see what stereotype we are defying today. Okay. This is. Okay, my mom was very adamant at making all of us swim. My older sisters, my older sister and younger sister both swim competitively. We were mm. all forced into swimming lessons. Tell me why I've had like three to four years of swimming lessons and it's still not my strongest thing. Like <laughs> So you're not gonna drown, but you're not gonna
3: fly through the water. Yeah. My
1: sisters are like Olympic swimmers. They'd be doing the butterfly, the backstroke, <laughs> da, da, da da da. Every single time like I would start a new swim lesson, I told them I could swim, so we just skip things. So I feel like I missed a few lessons, I know. So you've been scamming your entire life? Uh, it's to my blood, boo. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But before we go, we got y'all an extra special guest. Yes. We all know him. Started with The Roots. Now the music director of The Late Night Show with Jimmy Fallon. And everyone's favorite musical genius. Questlove! I know that's right. And y'all know I was hyped because I got another Philly
3: John in the building. We talked to Questlove about getting his start in Philly with The Roots. We talked to him about being a conscious rapper and how he learned how to balance his voice with his commercial success. And we even got a sneak peek at the Sundance award-winning film, which was also his directorial debut, Summer of Soul.
1: So excited to speak to you. Like, cannot even explain it. So hyped. Thank you. Amira, I got another one. I got another Philly John on the podcast. I know. (laughs) I was just thinking
3: that.
0: Nice. You're from Philly?
3: Yes. (laughs) Okay. What
0: part of Philly are you from?
3: The Germantown, Mount Airy area. Nice.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Germantown. That's uh, on Germantown Avenue. One of the very first Roots rehearsal spots was way up in Germantown. And not to mention, I went to uh, Settlement Music School up in Germantown as well. So I got roots there.
3: You probably know my area better than I know my
0: area. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sort of. You know, it's it's weird. Like, I'm I'm from West Philly. So West and Southwest Philly are kind of like where my, in Center City, of course, is like where my DNA is implanted. But no, I, I, I have family and friends. And, you know, every roots rehearsal pre our albums were always up in Germantown.
3: I love it. So we were destined for this conversation.
1: I know.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Amira, where are you from?
1: I'm from Houston. I say it every episode. Which ward? (laughs) I'm from Southwest. Okay,
0: cool. Southwest,
1: Houston. I feel like I say it every episode, so I've been very happy that Kirby has had you, and then we just spoke to Quinta Brunson, so she has two Philly people back-to-back. So... Got a Philly shout out in this. Very happy. It's my moment. This is her moment and I will give it to you. (laughs) We do like to start every podcast the same. We ask every guest the same question because this last year and a half has been a little chaotic, a little stressful. Mm -hmm. How are you? How are you doing really?
0: I'm doing awesome. It's kind of weird to frame this in a way that it doesn't make it seem because, you know, I don't want to say like, you know, the short soundbite, of course, will be like, Oh, I'm thriving to the detriment of 3 million deaths and 143 million COVID cases. But, you know, as with the entire world, a lot of us had to face ourselves and stop. I'm world famous for keeping busy, like jobs on jobs on jobs on jobs on jobs.
1: Booked and busy. Yeah. and,
0: (laughs) And when all that stops, and that's kind of all, you know, you know, ever since high school, this has been my life. When you stop. You have to get to know yourself. And of course, like you have to get to know the people that you're with, if you have family or a partner, that sort of thing. So it's been a learning curve. And for me, you know, if I have to reduce this to how it started and how is it going, you know, in the beginning I was I was panicking hard. How am I going to survive? And my payroll and my houses, my mama crib, and all those things. And this forces you to be inventive and figure out a pivot. And you can either heed the call or you can panic. I panicked for seven weeks, and then I heeded the call, and then my life absolutely transformed. So I'm certain with most things, especially with Black people, we have this way of making, what's I guess, the reverse of lemons the lemonade, sort of making a a rose-colored glasses situation, even in dark and tragic times. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in starting already. Like last year, of course, it was like, oh, man, I can't wait to get out in the world, whatever. But You know, I was telling my girlfriend, like, yeah, man, I kind of miss. We we quarantined on a farm.
1: Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh.
0: Which was absolutely not. It wasn't on my bingo card of 2020. (laughs) You know, I'd I'd have emotional attachment to a bunch of chickens that get eaten by foxes like once every two months or something. Yeah. Oh, no. So, you know, I just it showed me a whole nother life. Well, yeah, it, it changed me. I actually purchased a farm. So. Yeah, another thing not on my bingo card. Like, I now own a ranch.
3: City boy turned countryside living. I love it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm a country mouse now. Yeah. <laughs>
3: so amazing because I feel like uh, Mira and I have had the pleasure and the honor of speaking to a lot of incredible guests like yourself on this podcast but I'm always in awe of the musicians and the artists that we get to talk to because I feel like everyone's world was turned upside down but musicians people that are used to being on tour buses like you're saying on tour with their fans it's a totally totally different world and also this is another full circle moment for me because I actually started as an NBC page so I remember bringing people in the Tonight Show, the roots were the house band. So this is really full circle again for me, but I want to get right into it. So we know we did our research on you. Not that we had to. We did
1: the Googles.
3: (laughs) But we know that your father is a musician and your mom was a model and a dancer and even had her hand in your dad's band as well. So just want to ask you straight off the bat, what role did music play in your household and what did you grow up listening to?
0: Okay, so my father, you're correct. My father was a a legendary Philadelphia doo-wop singer who had his start around like 1957. And because, you know, he was the first generation of doo-wop or rock and roll, 20 years later when I came along in the early 70s, that was also the first time that we had the first wave of nostalgia culture. You know, it was the first time that's like, oh, so people who are now 30 and 40 want to celebrate what they were doing when they were 15, like listening to this type of music. So I'll say that for the first three to four years of my life, he was doing like these type of shows where Dick Clark would organize like 15 to 20 oldies acts of the day, Madison Square Garden, or, you know, like that sort of thing. Yeah. And then my dad nuanced that into like a nightclub act. And the, the only way I can describe it is sort of like, now like where we will go see somebody DJ at a nightclub back then in the 70s pre like DJ culture really caught on and took over the prime choice of entertainment like around 1977 so before 77 if you're going to a bar chances are like the jukebox was your friend and if not then there was always like a we call them like, you know you would know them as the wedding band but like
2: <laughs> everyone
0: had a band and their job was to learn the songs of the day and they'd be like a, a, a human karaoke machine so that was kind of my dad's nightclub act like he like nuanced his four or five local hits to his niche audience and he dressed it in these shows that had songs of the day and that sort of thing and because the idea of having a babysitter really wasn't a thing until (laughs) babysitters weren't a thing until the 80s. Mm -hmm. So you had to learn the family trade.
3: Your child was on your hip during practice right with you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But more than that, I was working. So as a five-year-older, like, you know, mostly we were always on the road, traveling, doing shows and whatnot. And they always had jobs for me to do. So, you know, when I was five, I was like the family GPS. When I was seven, I had to learn how to clean uh, clothes and iron and all that crap. And then when I was nine, he made me a uh, tech and, and produce like a stage manager. So I had to operate the mics and I operated the soundboard and the lights. And then when I was 12 at Radio City Music Hall, my dad's drummer got in a, a motorcycle accident and he was just like, All right, well, you know everything. So you're the new band leader. So at wow. 12.
1: Oh, wow.
0: That's. <laughs> <laughs> that's- a
1: lot
3: of responsibility it
0: was a trial by fire
3: oh my god so you kind of were just thrown in
0: I mean yeah but it was it was like I mean I I could drum like an adult by like nine ten like I started when I was five but you know I always tell the story that going out to Radio City Music Hall in front of like six thousand people and leading an entire orchestra was not a problem to me but the second that that show was done and this woman approaches me backstage and she's like young man You're 12 years old and you led that whole band. You're amazing. Yeah. And I'm looking at her her like, I'm looking at her like, you're Susan from Sesame Street. She's (laughs) like, that's right. She's like, and my husband was the keyboard player. You did an amazing job. And then I threw up all over the place. (laughs) Oh, no. So so it's like uh, facing 6,000 people in Radio City, no problem. But like, seeing an actual like God figure. You
3: met your icon. Right,
0: exactly. And then <laughs> suddenly like I got nervous. But um, as far as their music taste, you know, I, I gravitated towards it. And the thing I kind of want to dispel is this whole, this myth of me being like the all-knowing Savannah music. Really, it's the fact that I lived in a don't-touch-my-stereo household. You know, my dad would binge shop all the records of the day. So pretty much like twice a month, he'd come home with like 200 more records. His personal preferences, though, was like uh, what we would call like yacht rock, whereas my mom would be closer to what I would call like a, my taste, like a crate digger. Like, a, like if, I, if she were making beats, like she would judge albums based on how funky the cover was. So she got like the really eclectic, funkier, jazzy stuff. And then my sister, in order to blend in with her classmates, you know, you had to not code switch, but you'd have to adapt to their taste. And her classmates were listening to Zeppelin And David Bowie and Queen and all that stuff So I lived in a 3,000 record household
1: Oh my gosh
0: So in some sort of, I guess you could say uh, It's in a Stockholm Syndrome way I had to adapt to the taste of three people in my household And then once Rap started sampling that stuff Then suddenly it was like, oh, I know where that's from Oh, I know where that's And then that was my entry into where I am now
3: I love you dispelling that myth because even when Amir and I were prepping for this interview, I'm at home with my parents. And my dad is like, shh, I'm doing an interview today. And they're asking, who are you speaking with? We say Questlove. And my dad is like, oh my gosh, he's <laughs> such a musical historian. Oh my God, you're going to have such a great conversation. So I appreciate right. that. Yeah. No, it, it, I
0: mean, yes, I do have the knowledge of the music, but I guarantee you if I were left to my own devices, and allowed to choose the music in the household. Yeah, I'd be listening. to it, It's like if you're a parent and you let your kid choose their food. Yeah, I'd choose cereal all day. And so, yeah, th- the key component was don't touch my stereo. And there were dire consequences to touching the stereo. I won't even tell you the first time I tried to scratch that sort of thing. <laughs> no, it didn't work out well. So, yeah, and by the time that all that stuff got sampled, then I realized I, I had a calling. So that was my trial by fire into music.
1: I love it. So... The Roots, kind of on this tail. Yes. You guys are kind of like the early founders of conscious rap. Like when we think of conscious rap, you guys are number one for us. So like, how did that ethos even start? Like when you guys got together, was like, this is what we're doing. This is who we are. Or did it come over time?
0: You know, it's weird. Okay. So the thing is, is that what really attracted us is the first generation of conscious rap really starts with the Native Tongues Collective. And that that really starts in 87 and that's the collective of the Jungle Brothers, A Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul. Mm-hmm. And then the groups that they influenced Diggable Planets, Arrested Development. And I'll say that it's the equivalent of you running to uh okay, you're a Philadelphian. You you running to the subway <laughs> platform just a little bit too late while the door is closed. Yep. And then and then you gotta wait another 15 minutes for the next train to come. So the thing is, is that it's kind of weird because that was always an issue. And the issue was like, if you were seen as anything, but regular, or, you know, like even today, there's this sort of quasi anti intellectualism that hangs in our political realm.
3: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's almost like, you know, you get celebrated, or you you, you get dismissed if you have too much information, or if you believe in science, or like, Thinks that should be captain obvious.
1: Yes, and being in Texas, mm, I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: I, I feel you. And so the thing, the thing is, is that seeing those groups made us feel like, oh, we could do that too. Like they look like us, and they talk like us, and they're they're kind of nerdy. They're not menacing, and that's not to typecast. Like, well, you know, rap was just like grabbing your nuts and saying bitches, and you know, all that stuff. Yeah, it wasn't that. But I noticed that those groups are really slow to kind of claim an alternative space or a conscious space or that sort of thing so it was almost like you didn't want people to know that you were too smart Mm -hmm. so in our case you know i I think in the beginning people mistook us for being quote politically correct for being politically conscious however there was a point where once we turned 30 and we just like yo like how long because first of all to to make it past 2000 like in my mind like 1999 2000 was like the future Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now we see 1999 and 2000 as like, oh, the year that, you know, Justin and Britney wore that unfortunate, like, denim outfit. Yeah, <laughs> like how vintage and how old that looks. But, you know, at the time, you know, once we realized like, oh, we're going to have an actual career past our 30s, then it became a thing of like, well, what do we want to talk about? Because like after a while, it's going to get a little old for us to just constantly talk about how diggity dope we are and like how we can freestyle out, like out rhyme the best of you and all those things. Like these, these imaginary sucker MCs we keep talking about. <laughs> and then it became a thing of like, we don't want to just rhyme for the sake of Ritalin. And so I'll say that around 2002, we decided like, okay, well, we should say something. And I mean, you know, unfortunately at the time as a resident in Philadelphia, there was a period between 2004 and 2013 in which like Philly was definitely in the top 10 of the most murderous cities. There was a point in like 2007 where we were clocking in almost 5 to 15 deaths a day. Oh
1: my
3: gosh. And it was
0: numbing cuz you know, like some of these people are our friends and you know like you got to pay for services or funerals or it became numbing so you know it was hard to ignore. So that's you know I'll say that in the beginning we were just more politically correct, but not political, and really got in, purposely got into that lane. I guess once we turned 30 and realized that there has to be something more than throw your hands in the air like you just don't care. But we're also, you know, I, I acknowledge that the world needs a release sometimes. So there's a balance to it.
3: That's really interesting because I feel like when I'm listening to the Roots music, you're like one of the few musicians' bands that I listen to and I really pay attention to the lyrics. And I guess that's that political correctness coming out that I kind of gravitate towards. Right. But I want to move you even into now, 30 plus years later, and now you're the house band for The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. and One of the things that Amir and I related to is that we are also Black women in corporate America, right? And there's this balance of how do you bring your full best self to work every day, especially with so much going on in the world, with also knowing, well, this corporation is paying my bills right now. (laughs) And there's a level of decorum that you feel that you have to have when you're walking into work. So I'm wondering, how did you kind of balance the statements that you were making through your music with the commercial success. Now that you guys have, especially being at a place like NBC and on the tonight show.
0: Yeah, there's a level of, I think there's no black person that's in the professional sphere that doesn't have to deal with some level of code switching just in terms of survival and that sort of thing. You know, it it was weird at the time because when we got offered the position I'll say around like 2006, 2007, it started to get a little crazy. Like it's one thing when you're just out of high school and in your early 20s and you make a decision. You know what? We're going to move to London. And then you get an apartment, a flat, and you you just stay there for like four years without, you know, you don't have anyone else to. But, you know, once you get later on in life and then suddenly there's kids to think about, there's family to think about. There's other people besides yourself to think about. It's not that easy. So like even around 2006, 2007, we were kind of like, man, if there ever was like some sort of like Celine Dion situation where we can have a residency (laughs) at one place, at one place only. And then now it's like, be careful for what you (laughs) wish for, because, you know, the situation with Fallon was I was the musical director of uh, the Chappelle show for season two and season three Mm -hmm. and Chappelle's writing partner, Neil Brennan, you know, when season three kind of imploded out without us being prepared, you know, we were kind of without jobs and um, Neil Brennan was considering, if not directing the tonight show, at least being a consultant to them. So what he told Jimmy Fallon, when Jimmy Fallon asked like, who do you recommend for like music? It was ask the roots, ellipsis, dot, 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 dot. They know all the best musicians. And Jimmy just took it as, as the roots, period.
1: Uh, <laughs> Good call, Jimmy Fallon. I know. <laughs> Tunnel vision.
0: You know, at, at the time that, you know, that was the pivot we had to deal with. Like, well, do we walk away from what we built for the last 19 years to do this unproven thing where, you know, has the band ever been like seen as still cool and incredible doing this sort of thing or You know, and then I I just made a decision walking in the door. I knew that we'd be underestimated, but for me, I wanted to make it as cool as possible and bring as much credibility. And the first thing that Jimmy told me was like everything you ever learned in your life, you're gonna use in this in this gig in this job. And sure enough, that that was the case. I think in the very beginning they didn't know our level of musicianship and our level nerdom. So I think it was sort of like, oh, these cool guys that Jimmy just insist on being the house band, but you know, they were worried about like, well, do you guys know like Andrew Lloyd Webber and, and do you guys know who Conway Twitty is and Tom T hall, like old country stars. And you know, what if a jazz artist comes on? Do you know how to play that too? Or is it just like rap music? You know, and after the first 10 weeks, then they realized what was on their hands and sort of like, you know, it was like manna from heaven, like, Oh, this is the best situation. So I think they wound up crafting the show around us. And suddenly the show became more music centric than anything like, a lot of the highlights of the show have some sort of music.
3: Yes. You all showed your talent early
0: on. Yeah, we, we had to use everything we knew to <laughs> to do it. And so what it wound up being was, one, it allowed for those with family to be in a specific place and to raise their family. It allowed people like me who couldn't keep a girlfriend for like more than seven months to actually like <laughs> like to get a real sustainable relationship and that sort of thing. And it also let me explore creativity. And so I took advantage of it. Like, I, I consider that place 30 Rocky University, like a college. I'm always on the eighth floor at SNL, trying to see how they operate. Whenever cooks or chefs come in, I'm like spying on them to see how they operate. You know, always on a comedian's back, like, can I go to a comedy club with you? So I've used those last 12 years. It's, it's like going to high school all over again. Like, it's been 12 years.
3: Okay, but I have a quick question for you. I've always wondered, you're saying that, you know, it's almost like university for you, 30 Rock being on this show. But at the first, it was like, ask the roots, dot, 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 they know everything about music. So are you guys asked and give suggestions on up and coming musicians, artists that you know, are going to be breakout stars that you want to have on the show?
0: Oh, the whole time.
3: Because we saw Meg The Stallion on that stage, and we were like, what? <laughs> yeah, I'll give
0: you a prime example. One of the very first early moments of, like, me giving a thumb up, a very slow, pensive thumb up, was, you are know, like, a, have you heard of this collective called Odd Future? Like, what do you know about this Tyler, the creative person? And, you know, just off the bat, I was like, oh, dope. They're, they're going to be the new Wu-Tang for Gen Z and da 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 And why? Should we bring them to the show? And I was... I was thinking about it, and I was just like, oh, man, if this goes awry, then there's my credibility. Am I going to get fired from the show? Like, I was legit scared because the thing is, like, Tyler, look, Tyler is all those things. He's he's a savant, sweetheart, genius, all those things. But I just didn't know which Tyler I was going to (laughs) get. Right. And then once I realized how that, like, that was the first time we had a viral moment on the show that, like, trended on Twitter. And was a total game changer. And then suddenly it became, yo, it became everyone's first, like it was, it was Adele's first stop. It was Ariana Grande's first stop. It was, it was literally, you know, those who are super established now, that became their first stop. So like us co-signing a lot of these unknown groups that we had never heard before. Yeah, they definitely used our expertise and our knowledge and would often come to me and not and come to them like, yo, you really, you should know about blah, 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 or da, 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 da. Like you know, this kid, Bruno Mars, he he's going places. You might want to give him a chance and that sort of thing. So we were used for our expertise and occasionally, you know, we had to ring the emergency alarm and rush somebody to the front of the line to get them on the show.
3: Okay. Okay. No, like who? Now I have to know.
0: Well, Snow Allegra was one of them. Um... Dude, this happens so many times. Um, oh, what's their names? Uh, well, okay. well, I, I go back with Jasmine Sullivan, so I don't really count Jasmine, but Jasmine at the time, um, there's a lot, but those are the two that come to mind.
1: Well, that explains a lot of the best musical moments that I've seen on Fallon. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs>
2: That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: Earlier, we kind of spoke about how when we're in office, like, obviously, we work for a big corporation. Mm -hmm. So there's certain things like your corporation could do that just don't align with what you believe in. And I think in this past year, especially like Kirby and I have found our own ways to keep our jobs and protest in our own ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I was reviewing like for this interview, I was like, "Oh wait, I remember the exact moment when I saw you and the Roots kind of protest on Fallon." Bachman. When Trump was on.
0: Oh, I forgot about Trump. <laughs> I oh <thought> yeah, <laughs> you let <me> Show Bachman.
1: <laughs> no, there are many. There are so many. But like yeah. even when Trump was on, not playing in, not playing out, saying like, "This is not going to be like play. Like this is not a joke." are there any other moments you just mentioned that you guys have kind of had to take a stand and like, say, I don't agree with this. Like I'm here.
0: Dog, There have been many (laughs) moments where we had to buck a shot either in the most sort of stealth way possible. Mm -hmm. I.e. the walk on song. Yeah. The first time I got in trouble, um, you know, Michelle Bachman came on the show and, you know, again, it's like there's such a difference between what life was in 2010 and what life is in 2021. And so, you know, I guess the general rule for late night show was like, okay, this is going to be a neutral ground for whoever visits the show. However, you know, when Michelle Bachman was first on, yikes, I I was just like, yo, man, she said some real fucked up shit about, you know, about how slavery wasn't that bad and da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm, and, yeah. blah, blah, blah. and, you know, I was just like, I don't know how I feel about this. Like, I know this is a neutral show, but, you know, I got feelings about this. And so I chose uh, an instrumental of Fishbone's Lion-Ass Bitch for her (laughs) (laughs) walk-on and I almost got away with it. And then, like, one viewer at home was like, wait, was that Lion-Ass Bitch by Fishbone you just played with (laughs) Michelle Bachman? You got away with that? And then, like, you go to sleep and I didn't know what viral moments was, but you know the last time you, you ever fall asleep and you hear the vibration of your cell phone
3: yep mm, mm, mm,
0: mm, mm. the last time i i heard that non-ending vibration mm, 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 mm. my dream was 911 my mom making sure i'm alive cuz i was in new york city and when i picked up the phone and i saw there was like 17 minutes phone calls and 16 of them were from my manager. <laughs> I was like, ah, damn. Did that Fishbone song get out to the public? He's like, "Yeah, think? <laughs> so literally, yeah, I mean, there's been a few times where we've been in uh, uncomfortable situations.
3: I can always tell when you guys are like into it or not because of the facial expressions, <laughs> but I do catch
1: them. And also, I love that. I love a little shade. I'm always like, mm, I peep that you don't feel them. Yeah, subtle shade.
3: Well, yeah,
0: people always look to the walk-on song to see exactly like what our message was. It was a learning curve.
3: I think what you're touching on, too, is how music oftentimes is a form of protest in its own way. And a lot of artists sometimes think that music should be reflective of the times and the world in which we're living in. And other artists, like, for instance, we had Rico Nasty on a couple of weeks ago. And she's the exact opposite. She said, my black joy is a form of protest. I want to create rump shakers for the black community. There's enough bad juju, bad news out there that she wants to create an escape for her fan base. How do you approach the balance between making conscious music and making music that celebrates black joy?
0: Okay. So it's funny you say that because back in 2002, 2003, journalist Touré was interviewing me. This is right when, I'll say maybe this is a week after Bush two had uh, declared war and the reelection was about to happen. And this is after 9-11. And uh, I told Torre, I said, even if times really got, you know, even if we threw it down the toilet, I said, you know, the one thing you can count on, the music is going to reflect the times. Like this is going to some of the some of the worst times politically is going to bring out some of the the best political protest music, and I can't wait. And you know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. Nothing <laughs> happened. And I was so chagrined. And the thing was, is that at that time when I said that. If you remember, Natalie Mines of the Dixie Chicks had went on records to say that, you know, we're ashamed of our president and, you know, we don't agree with war. And, you know, that was the first example of like viral canceling that I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, that's the real cancel culture that no one talks about. Like they threw CDs and shoes. I will never forget the footage of watching them destroy the Dixie Chicks for that.
0: Right. And the thing was, I was just like, yo. If like, who's more protected than white women in this country? I know. And if they're willing to roast them, then what choice do I have? And then suddenly you just saw this, this numbness, if you will, or just this, it's not even apathy. I, I don't get it. Like there was just nothing, there was nothing that I felt was even leaning towards message music or something to get us through those times. And it was almost like we were partying to numbness. So what I do believe is that I do believe that there has to be a balance. You know, I'm part of the generation that grew up in a time in which messages and, and consciousness was hand in hand. You know, I, I loved public enemy just like I loved N.W.A. I, I loved, you know, it's it, and it's like, you know, I like fight the power and I do love rope shaker. So <laughs>
1: I mean, duality. Duality.
0: (laughs) I do believe that there is space for both. And yes, I also think it's problematic the way that black pain seems somewhat fetishized. Yeah, yeah. And it gets into overkill. However, I don't also I don't want to drop the ball on it as well. Like so there's a thin line between always remembering. But there's also a line with that not don't internalize that to the point where that robs you of your joy. So yes, black joy is important
1: speaking of black joy summer of soul your directorial debut yes the opening night of the nantucket film festival
0: i'd never thought in my lifetime that the number one limerick i ever studied in this (laughs) lifetime that city would ever host something that i created like literally there's there's now an ending to there once was a man from nantucket like and he showed a film
3: and we could not think of anyone more deserving of it
1: to be honest to our listeners we got a we got a sneak peek. We have seen this amazing film, But if you could tell our listeners, can you just tell us about the film and what inspired you to make it?
0: okay, so the Summer of Soul is a documentary about a music festival, the Harlem Cultural Music Festival, that happened in nineteen sixty nine What makes this music festival notable? is the fact that this is happening at the same time that Woodstock is also happening. So it's been dubbed the Black Woodstock, Stevie Wonder, Sly and the Family Stone, Nina Simone, B.B. King, the Staple Singers, Monco Santa Maria, Ray Barreto, Hugh Masekela, Max Roach. Gladys Knight. Yeah. Gladys Knight and the Pips, David Ruffin, all of these awesome musical luminaries because of the power of the lineup. They instantly knew that they had to record And capture this festival and what happens is that in 1970 in light of the Woodstock film coming out and really changing people's lives like Woodstock itself was a noted viral event but the legend of Woodstock was built once that movie came out and that's what touched the whole world and that's what to find a generation. That's why when you think of 1969, the Summer of Love, and you just think of all the images you saw in Woodstock, how it changed you. This was the black version of that. And if anything, I would say that one of the things that I noticed that was the difference between Woodstock and the Harlem Cultural Festival was if any of those things that happened at Woodstock would have happened happened at the Harlem Cultural Festival, then we would have heard about it because. There was gate crashing, open mm-hmm. drug usage, mm-hmm. mud fights, and it's like any and everything. So this, this happens in the summer of 69. Zero incidents. 300,000 people the entire summer of 1969. They witnessed this thing. And when it's time to figure out how to package it and sell it so that it could be seen, absolutely no one was interested.
3: Wow. Wow.
0: There was a small local... Station in upstate New York that broadcasted uh, an hour of it, so you know, kind of like Seven X, like the Fifth Dimension, Edwin Hawkins singers, uh, the Chambers Brothers. They did like a small one-hour version of it and came on like at eleven thirty at night after the news,
3: which is so crazy because of all the iconography on that stage during that entire festival.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing. Like it it's to me when it was presented. First of all, I had zero clue. This thing happens. So I often joke, I I joke with uh, about my producers when they first approached me about it. Like, yes, this mythical Harlem festival that you say Stevie Wonder and Slime the Family Stone, like that alone. Like, really? You want me to believe that? Like, I thought they were trying to, I thought they were trying to game me up for tonight's show tickets for real. Like, I thought like, uh, you, you guys will say anything to get in the show. And the thing is, is that once I saw the footage and realized what this was. I was like, wow, this this is I've never seen a level of black erasure at this level. Like it's almost like it didn't matter. And then once we started doing the movie, uh, one of our interviewees, Daryl Lewis, who at the time was 18 years old when he went, he said, hey, man, th- the reason why this festival, the purpose of this festival was basically to keep us to just keep us from rioting in the streets in the summer of 1969. That that was the only reason why they did it. And once that was achieved, then I'm still like, okay, we're done. Goodbye.
1: Wow. That feels like a lot of few things that they put a Band-Aid on for us last year.
0: <laughs> exactly. So, you know, at, at the time when quarantining started hitting, it wasn't lost on me that the the parallels between what we were dealing with in 2019, 2020, and really between 2016 and 2021 was happening 50 years ago. And it was the exact mirror of it. So I think it's still potent and still important and will still work its magic, even if 50 years late.
3: Yeah, it's so incredible because when we were watching it, and I know when I was watching it, I was kind of like, this entire festival could be taking place today and the political statements that are happening on the stage are so relevant to what we're still going through now and even the sentiments of the crowd and all the incredible performers but turning a multi-day festival into a two-hour movie is a huge undertaking and a complete pivot from what you're used to creatively so i want to ask what was your approach and how do you even start something like that
0: yeah you know i will say that um The first thing I did was I lived with, uh, it was like 40 hours of footage. And while we sent the original tapes to be baked and transferred and cleaned off and treated, which took about three to four months to do, like for them to do frame by frame brush up and to make sure that it it was perfect, the sound was perfect and whatnot. I was looking at sort of the rough footage, did a transfer maybe like 17 years ago when they were trying like one last attempt to see if somebody would buy this. So, you know, this became my instant aquarium. It was just constantly on. I kept it on loop. Even as I slept, I kept that television on and kept it playing for the same amount for four months at a time. And if something hit me, something hit me, I wrote it down. So I I kept it on all the monitors in my house. I kept it on all the televisions, one in my office, one in my studio. I just kept it always running. And if I saw something visually arresting, I took a note. And it was overwhelming because it's like, wow, I got 40 hours of footage and I know I can only tell the story in, in two hours. Like my first draft was like three and a half hours. And even though it was magical, I will say that this is the one area of creativity that has taught me the art of editing. So eventually, like we had to lose magic things like Nina Simone's entire performance was 45 minutes of like absolute mastery. So to just get three magic songs from that alone was one of the hardest things ever.
3: Well, I will say as a viewer, there is no shortage of magic left in your doc.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it was just phenomenal. Now I want a part two. Now I want to see <laughs> everything you killed.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, and I'm certain without a doubt that we will do uh, a director's cut or a criterion collection or something on that level because there's, there's just so much that... uh I wanted because the thing is, is that one, you have to tell you have to tell the story of history that has been lost, like the general facts. And then there's people that want to know things like how is this thing even organized in the first place and how are they able to pull it off? But then, you know, you're learning about and a lot, you know, again, a lot of this stuff made the the floor, like practically every artist had their story of dealing with racial strife, either at the hands of police or locals. You know, the fact that they, they still had to use the Green Book in 1969. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that sundown towns were still like a real thing.
1: They still are now.
0: <laughs> yes. It's real. So, you know, Gladys Knight had a lot of stories. Mavis Stables had a lot of stories. Stevie Wonder had a lot of stories. Like, and so it was a lot of information to try to pack in two hours. But I, I think we found the happy medium.
1: Okay. But what was your favorite performance that didn't make it into the movie?
0: Here's one factoid that will. <laughs> will fr- frustrate people. So, the way that they coordinated the festival, there was one snag that had to be dealt with and that was the, sort of like the last day of shooting, the television crew that was hired had already been pre-booked to shoot another show. So, the way that Hal Tolshan and Tony Lawrence organized the festival was like, okay, well, we have our A-list and all those people, like we'll we'll get them first and then for the last day of shooting, it's just one local singer, one local act. And uh, we'll have the Miss Harlem pageant in place of that. So we don't need a camera for that because it's just a local singer. And so the thing is, is that this camera crew was working on a pilot for this brand new show called Sesame Street. Oh. Wow. <laughs> and then there really wasn't any. Uh, there, it wasn't a problem simply because that local singer also got booked to be on the pilot of Sesame Street. We're going through the paperwork and the name of the group was called Listen, My Brother. And then when we looked at the lineup, my jaw dropped because this would have been the very first performance of 17-year-old Luther Vandross.
1: Wow. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh, my (laughs) gosh. Wow. I got chills. Are you kidding
0: it was yeah, it was like who's the local singer? And you know, we're looking at the paperwork. Like the paperwork told a lot of a lot of stories. Like I I had no clue that Mahalia Jackson was so valuable then. Like she was she commanded five figures back then. Whereas like the price for Sly and the Family Stone, I could reveal that Sly on the Family Stone only made twenty five hundred dollars. Oh
1: my gosh. So I was like, wow,
0: I I could have played, I could have had Sly and the Family Stone perform in my backyard for two yeah. thousand five hundred bucks. <laughs> Yeah, I, I know DJs. I got to pay more for that for like <laughs> somebody's uh, graduation party. So, yeah, a lot of the, the paperwork and the backlining told a whole nother story of how this this concert, how they had to really get inventive with their method. But yeah, I I, I will say that it just sat it sat in the basement. Thank God it was very minimal damaged, and it, it sounded and looked perfect.
3: Incredible. I literally was on the edge of my seat. Like, who was he going to say? <laughs> wow, that's,
1: that's a good one.
0: Nobody but Luther Vandross. Just Luther Vandross, that's all.
1: Just Luther. Just Luther. <laughs> Don't worry <Yeah>. about it. <laughs> yeah. So question. You've mastered so many different mediums. So have you always wanted to direct? Or did you see this story and was like, I have to do this?
0: Okay, so here's the real story. And, you know, the thing is, is that behind every creative you find a shell of a person that might feel as though they're like have imposter syndrome or whatever.
1: We've been there. We feel you. We've been there. That's a daily thought. Yeah.
0: There's (laughs) no doubt that, you know, I was extremely nervous about taking on something this, this huge, you know, this kind of responsibility to direct this film of, you know, it's historically significant in black culture. And I had a lot of self doubts, a lot of insecurities. And what's weird is that, (laughs) I kind of had to use my own book. Like, at, I think at one point in quarantining, I actually had to go to a few chapters of what I wrote in Creative Quest. And I, I realized that, yo, I got to take my own advice. And the thing is that creative people have skills that are transferable. And, you know, in the same process that it takes me to create music is the same process I use to write books and do all those things. And so basically I was just, you know, I was, I was switching lanes and I used my storytelling process to share the story of this event, and I I refused, and I I give a lot of credit to my girlfriend. Like she <laughs> she wasn't having the the self-flagellation, or good. you know the 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 tendency to to self-sabotage things when they go good. Like she wasn't having that, and you know told me that you're you're doing something historically important, and you know for future mirrors out there, like you you didn't get to experience this as a child watching this and this inspiring you, but you're going to do this for the five-year-old version of you in the future when their parents take them to see this. And so.
1: That's beautiful. Can we thank her for the art that we got?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no. Gracie is, she's my North star in, in all of this. So yeah, I will say that, you know, no one just felt like more fish out of water. And yeah, I called, I would call Ernest Dickerson. I called Spike Lee. I called Ava DuVernay. And Zynga Stewart, like all of my go-to.
3: Your Rolodex of go-to greatness. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And just to, you know, to to ask for technical advice, to ask for story crafting and all those things. So it was helpful.
1: What's next for you? Award winning, Director Hack. Can we just, award winning? Let's, moment of silence really quick,
3: Amira. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But do you plan on doing more docs? Is this now a world in which you can see yourself going in?
0: Well, here's the thing that I learned in 2020. I learned about our magic, which is weird. And I'm trying not to frame this in the way where it's like, you know, Dorothy clicks her heels three times and suddenly like, oh, I had this gift all along and didn't know it. It's weird. I'm I'm the kind of manifester that every sentence starts off with, Oh man, you know, be dope. I wish somebody would make a movie about that. Oh yeah, that would be dope. Like, and then suddenly I hear like Obama's voice in my head, like, "Well, you gotta be the change you want to see." Yeah.
1: You know.
0: And for me, like, I I thought I just wanted to be the guy that paid his money to a movie theater to watch a film about what I wish to see. So what was weighing heavy on my mind at, at with the Sly and the Family Stone portion of this concert was the fact that this was a dress rehearsal for them, and then in two weeks they were going to do Woodstock, and it's at Woodstock that they become household names. Like he was the walking version of King's I Have a Dream speech. Like I have this intersectional band and women and men and black and white and cousins and 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 brothers are all together, you know. And the whole time I was just like, wow. And I was obsessed with it. And then I got a call from Common. And he says, Hey, I just acquired the rights to slide in the Family Stones uh wow. story. And uh yeah, man, like, I feel like you're the person that tells that story because you're such an expert on sly. And and then it's like, wait a minute, like one film, it's like, okay, I I had a cool project to do during quarantine, but now it's like two films. Does that make me a director? So
3: absolutely does. (laughs) The one film would have made you a director.
0: (laughs) So the deal is there's about four to five projects up the way. The one that I can specifically name for you right now, is I'm currently working on the Sly and the Family Stone documentary.
1: Yes, I saw that. Can't wait. So excited.
0: <laughs> yeah. The angle I'm taking with that is going to be like no other, because, you know, oftentimes when you see music documentaries, especially about like these great figures, there's always this this tragic element, like, oh, they're drug addicts. And yes, they make great music, but they're tragic and da-da-da-da-da. And- For me, I want to, like, I really want to be the the first person to document Black creativity where you can humanize it and sort of explain the pressures that it is to live in a duality world. Because Sly has one foot in San Francisco with the hippies, and he has one foot in Oakland with the Black Panthers. And the pressures to stay true, to stay real, and to stay progressive, and to integrate, but stay Black, there's a lot to uncover. So I'm probably going to discover a lot about myself as well in doing this. So I can't wait to do it.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. We talk about James Baldwin a lot on this podcast too. And mm-hmm. his idea of double consciousness and the idea of having two selves and having to navigate two worlds as black people in, in America. It's exhausting
0: sometimes.
1: It's
3: tiring. It is very exhausting, yeah. but we yeah. do it very well because
1: we don't have a choice.
0: Exactly. Or die. Right. You're right. Thrive (laughs) or die. That's it. Thrive or die. And that's it.
1: Exactly. Thrive or die.
0: Yeah.
1: Quick question. Are there any other musical icons that you would love to tell their story? Like other than this huge festival, like who are the other people who have shaped your musical career that you would love to tell their stories?
0: See, that's the thing.
1: (laughs) I think I'm putting you in a tricky situation. Just a little bit tea.
0: (laughs) So once once the word of Sundance came out and when, you know, people initially saw it, because you know, I kinda enter these situations in which, you know, even with the roots, like you kind of kinda come in the door underestimated, which you lower expectations and then when you rise above it then it's sort of like, it makes your experience that much more powerful. So I knew coming in the gate that people were sort of like, all right, well, the drummer from The Roots is going to tell us the story. Okay, we'll see how this turns out.
1: Really? Because on my end... And that's a different inflection. I'm like the drummer of The Roots. No, and you were the talk of all of my programming halls. It was like, we have to watch it, we have to screen it fast, go to virtual Sundance,
0: check it out. Yeah, it, it's I just mean in the beginning, like I held it close to the chest because... I sense that there might be some sort of trepidation on some people's part, like, okay, well, let's see what you really got. And, you know, a lot of my peers would admit it. Like, well, we knew that it was going to be cool, but we didn't know this is going to be like this good. Like, damn, I wish I made this film this good. You know, that sort of thing. So I'll say that after Sundance, that's literally when the floodgates started opening and then the world became my oyster. So I will say that, yes, I can mention Sly, but there's four other projects that are just as important and like mind blowing. And they are at my door right now. And I'm trying to, this is almost my Fallon tonight show moment where it's like, am I, am I now I, I, I lived a life where before in 2020, I lived a life of am I with a question mark. And now I live a life of I am exclamation point. So you know, it's it's owning that and really not having uh, any fear of stepping into new shoes.
3: Well, we are so happy that you silenced that imposter syndrome and that you stepped into your role of director because <laughs> Summer of Soul is so, so good and we cannot wait for the rest of the world to get to see it. Thank you. Because it is that good. It is so phenomenal and so incredible, but also heartbreaking at the same time in a way because of the parallels between, dang, we went through this. Um teen years ago, and we're still going through still it. Still going now. through it, yes. Yeah. But that said, we like to end every podcast episode with an iteration of this question. And for you, if you could fill in the blank, we have my black is revolutionary because
0: uh my black is revolutionary because and I, I have the space to answer this. Okay, this is exciting. <laughs> Wait, without overthinking it, mirror, just say what's on your heart. My black is revolutionary because our stories matter and I am a storyteller.
1: Oh, yes, that's it. That was an exclamation <laughs> point. Not a question, exclamation point. I am a storyteller, exclamation <laughs> point, you. absolutely.
0: I, I got to admit, you guys are probably, this This has been one of the more enjoyable interviews I've I've done. And it's, it's weird considering the fact that, one, I have my own podcast, so I have to spend like, <laughs> have to spend, like, five hours a week sometimes, you know, talking to two artists and then dealing with interviews for The Tonight Show and dealing with interviews for The Roots and dealing with interviews for the movie and whatever. But this actually was enjoyable. I, I, I appreciate this.
1: We appreciate Aww. that so much. Yeah, oh, my gosh.
3: We could have spoken to you for hours. Yeah. <laughs> Thank Thank there's you. just There's just so much to applaud you on. And just literally, we want to encourage you to keep going because you have a fan base here. And from one Philly native to the other, I revel in your journey and you give me the power to want to keep going. So thank you.
1: Beautiful. Yeah. And you are kind of the core of why we fought to get this podcast to celebrate our black faves in the right moment, like give the flowers at the right time. So there's a little full circle. Thank you. So we'll be waiting for Summer of Soul part two.
0: I received that love. Thank you. Previously, I would have matrix bullet dodged all the love in the world. <laughs> like, nope, nope, nope. you're not getting me. Nope. thank you.
3: The Table is Ours is produced by us, Kirby Dixon and Amira Lawali. This episode was also produced by McKamey Lynn and edited by Melissa Kaplan. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll be back before you know it. In the meantime, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and follow at The Table is Ours.